The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest <laughs> edition. It's Wednesday, May 9th, 2018. On today's show, Tali is the new movie from scriptwriter Diablo Cody and director Jason Reitman. It's about the budding relationship between a beleaguered mother of three and her manic pixie night nanny. And then Decoder Ring is the new slate podcast in which supreme ultra friend of the program, Willa Paskin, cracks cultural mysteries. We'll discuss it and its captivating first episode on the Pavlovian trigger known as the laugh track. And finally, are you a brand? And if not, what's wrong with you? Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, uh, Dana Stevens, uh, Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. And uh, we're going to do something slightly different. Willa Paskin came in to talk about her show, and it was just so delightful uh, trading rapier uh, observations with her uh, in the pre-show warm-up that we decided to ask her to stick around and talk about Tully, about which she has many insights. Uh, Willa, welcome back to the show. Hi. Uh, all right, let's dig in. Tully stars Charlize Theron as a 30 or possibly 40-something, I couldn't quite tell, suburban mom whose life with the arrival of kid number three is starting to seriously overwhelm her. So her well-to-do brother buys her a special gift, a night nanny, someone who will come in at 10.30 p.m. or so and allow her to sleep and recover a little bit. The night nanny turns out to be a sexy empath who seeks to heal her new boss, not just spell her for the night. As you might imagine, complications ensue. Let's listen to a clip. You seem like a great mom. <laughs> great moms organize class parties and casino night. They bake cupcakes that look like minions. All the things I'm just too tired to do. Honestly, even getting dressed just feels exhausting. I open my closet and I just think, didn't I just do this? Yeah, but that's the downside of living on a planet with a short solar day. Although Jupiter's even shorter. You're like a book of fun facts for unpopular fourth graders. Hey, this is producer Benjamin Frisch here. Um, This is a spoiler-free discussion of Tully, but in case you wanted to go into the movie just not knowing anything at all, um, you can skip ahead uh, to our next segment, um, and that will be in about 14 minutes. And if you skip ahead to that point, you'll be free and clear of any of our discussion um, about Tully and um, just uh, move on to the next segment. Okay, thank you. I will add, by the way, that the movie stars Ron Livingston as uh, Charlize's husband and Mackenzie Davis as Tully. Dana, let me start with you. What'd you make of this movie? Oh, man, I'm so glad we're talking about it because I feel conflicted and excited and uh, and interested in it. I, I liked it. I would send people to it, especially parents. Um, I think it is a really unusually, in parts, honest exploration of the trials of early parenthood and specifically having three children, which seems incredibly hard and nightmarish. I come from a family of three children and we're very close together. My brother and sister and I are all within, you know, there was a period where my mother had three children under four, basically. And uh, and it seems so masochistic and crazy. I kind of want to send her to see this movie. Um but I also have big reservations about it. I think I would say that of the three collaborations there have been now between uh, Diablo Cody as screenwriter and Jason Reitman as director, this is my favorite. The, those three have been Juno, which we talked about here on the show, um, 
young adult, which I can't remember if we did a segment on, but I, I did, I remember write about it and fight about it with Dan Coys, who liked that movie better than I did. And, and now this one. So they've all been in some ways a study of a woman at a different life stage, right? Juno is about an unplanned teenage pregnancy. Young adult is about the author of young adult novels, who is herself a young adult. I guess she's supposed to be in her mid-20s or late 20s, maybe, and is essentially stuck in adolescence and, and can't grow up. And now we have this movie about a woman in middle age who's forming this bond with a much younger woman. So you can sort of see them as part of a trilogy. And I think this is the most mature and the most successful of those those three movies. But that said, there are some things about the ending of this movie that throw the whole rest of it into a different light, which can either make you sort of thrilled about the whole or make you question the whole. And I think I fall more into the latter category. All right. And we should stipulate for purposes of this conversation that we will not spoil the reveal at the end of the movie of what exactly is going on. There's something, as Steve noted, a little manic pixie night nanny, a little uh, confusing and unusual about this woman who comes to help in the middle of the night. And you spend a bunch of the movie trying to figure out quite what's going on in the relationship. In the final third or maybe even fifth of the movie, you get the answer. And we have re-scrambled our plans for Slate Plus. And in our Slate Plus segment today, we will discuss the ending of the movie and what we thought of it. But for the purposes of this conversation, we'll discuss uh, the movie without spoiling its ending. Which I think is important to do. I've seen that some reviews have spoiled it. So I would say if you're interested in this movie, don't read anything about it until you've gone to see it. But you can safely listen to this segment. All right. Well, uh, as with all movies that have a somewhat galvanic twist at the end, Julia, would you agree that they need the substance of the movie has to work absent the twist, right? One needs to be engaged throughout. The relationships need to be substantive and meaningful. Did this movie pass that test? I think so. I loved this movie. Uh, I think it's interesting to understand whether the things you think it is about when you were watching the first three quarters. I'm just going to keep using a different fraction here. The first seven eighths uh, <laughs> are actually what it reveals itself to be about once you get to the ending. But upon mulling it over, and I actually should say, I went, I did go to see this movie with my mom, who was in town this weekend. We went and caught a 5.30 show together. Oh, it's it was, a great mother It was movie. a really fun movie to see with your mom. Um, and I think this movie is profound and wonderful, actually. Like, I think there is a way in which um, the first unspecified chunk of it plays as a fable. There's something that doesn't seem quite fully realized about all of the people in the life that you're spending time in at the beginning. Um, the husband is a little thin. The brother is a little thin. Like the the kind of the people outside this relationship that Charlize develops with the night nanny uh, all have a bit of a cardboard cutout quality, which I spent some of the beginning of the movie wondering if it was a strength or a weakness. And I will just shout out Ron Livingston playing Drew, the husband, as like the poor man's Kyle Chandler who like existed before Kyle Chandler. And also, but just like, can we give him props for playing disappointing men so undisappointingly? He's like the world's best portrayer of just like the disappointing guy, like the guy who just isn't quite what you wish. Um, anyway, but... Uh, I actually think that slightly uh, cardboard cutout quality works okay because you're intrigued enough by the power and potency of this relationship between Charlize and Tully. And then once you see what the movie is actually about, uh, you see why it is that way. 
and I loved it. Can I add one thing about the cardboard cutout? It's just that in that, in a sense, we're inside her subjectivity, right? Inside Marlowe, the character that Charlize Theron is playing, inside of her sort of postpartumly depressed and, and that alienated self. And so it sort of makes sense that everyone in the world would be a cardboard cutout, usually someone unlikable. I watched, I went to see this movie because I was reviewing the Sheila Hetty novel, Motherhood, and there's all these other books about motherhood that have been coming out. I mean, there's a real deluge of them sort of in advance of Mother's Day. Um, and it's just sort of in the air. And thinking about that book, Motherhood by Sheila Hetty, which is sort of a conversation with herself and the self she could be if she decides to have a child. Um, this movie is sort of also about a conversation like that between women of two different generations on either side of having children. Um, so I was just really interested in how it actually made that dynamic seem supportive instead of like they're not totally alienated from each other. Like it's the the mother who's totally alienated from herself and is sort of um, miserable and at loose ends and exhausted. And it's this younger woman who basically comes to rescue her and um, with her energy and her generosity seems to like heal um, what's sort of messed up. And and that is a that's a more positive idea about the connection you might have to people that are not in your cohort, like are not people with children without children, than I think is usually in pop culture. There's something more um, a more helpful connection than just sort of like being disconnected from each other. Right. Although the fact that the whole thing is fantastical both financially and interpersonally <laughs> is like it's a thing that is a, a type of intergenerational support that is almost impossible for anyone to afford and be that the character of Tully and the trailer set it up this way she almost seems like a, a, a magic sprite it is true that it, I, I haven't read the Sheila Hattie book yet but it is true that it suggests a sort of intergenerational support that is somewhat apart from the like warring tribes that we get when we read about the motherhood wars today. And also, it seems like it would never fucking happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, you keep waiting for Tully to become sinister, which is something that, that Charlize yeah. Theron character herself jokes about when she first finally reluctantly accepts this money from her brother to hire a night nurse. She says, oh, but isn't she just going to be like from the hand that rocks the cradle and turn out to be, you know, this murderous schemer or something? And so you're sort of always waiting for that from this character. And part of, I think, what is renewingly interesting about the character of Tully is that she doesn't go down the expected paths for a motherhood thriller. Can I ask a question that I think is not a spoiler, but is about um, sort of like the thematic end of the film, which is that um, sort of like almost the lesson that's like imparted by Diablo Cody to us in the audience that seems a very idiosyncratically Diablo Cody perspective on things is that you are, as a parent, exhausted and bored and living this sort of sheltered, focused life on just getting your kids, getting dressed every day and getting your kids dressed every day. Um, not because <laughs> there's any like, thing actually super good about that, except that you are creating for your children a circle of safety. I think that's the term that she actually uses, mm. which was seemed like such um because I think why Diablo Cody's good, because that seemed like a thought that just came out of her head. Like that's how she feels or something. And so it's in this movie, it's not usually um how people talk about parenting. And I just wanted to know what you guys like thought about that as the like, it's okay that your life is shitty now. Because it has to be for your kids to like grow right. up being supported. Right. Being boring is right. the point. Yeah. Right. And the question is, well, what's the psychological toll of or what what you know, what kind of internal mental and moral ballast do you need in order to keep yourself together in the face of that demand when 
society has placed all of the burdens of raising children into the nuclear family, very often within gendered marriages, on women who are completely alone. I mean, it's the it's the utter isolation of this woman as she's trying to keep that circle of safety intact to the cost of keeping her own sanity, you know, together. And I thought that that was, you know, as a parent of two kids, you know, uh, but not a mother, right? Like I, I felt as though it it was a message worth delivering how ex- how not only how excruciatingly physically painful like you know obviously childbirth but a lot a lot of early motherhood is uh the the you know this is obviously a method performance by theron who wants to prove that she's many different things as an actress and certainly you know has proven it and so she gains a ton of weight she shows herself in a physically unflattering light and the point is simply that there's a, a kind of physical collapse that goes along with with early motherhood in order to make it through with a with a shred of dignity and sanity that you have to outsource you know you have to you have to like uber you know you know do an uber on on it is is a social indictment that you know i think the movie brings home quite powerfully she does have the worst husband in the world i mean like which is almost i mean it's almost like a comically how thin he is and how spaced out he is and how because he's Ron Livingston you sort of like don't just violently hate him but like he's just such a but like she like the solitude of her in that house yes. with her three kids is like very heightened but you know the his... thing is I, I I don't disagree with you Willa but as as someone as a man who goes to movies and sometimes thinks you know that is a very thinly drawn portrait of a dickhead and as a dickhead, I can tell you, you know, <laughs> we're richer than that. <laughs> yeah, we're much, much richer than that. Um, I looked at that and I thought there's actually I think there's something incredibly fair and perceptive about the portrait because the and he is a he's a exhausted breadwinner. And I thought Diablo Cody made an incredibly mature, artistically mature choice, which is I'm not going to spend a whole lot of energy on this guy. Um it, it's really not about his failings or why he failed. It's not his drama at all. And in, and in order to really keep it her drama, it's not going to be about what a wretched, wretched husband he is. He's just an average bad husband, which I think is a much deeper indictment too. He's not dark. He's not fucked up. He's not abusive. He's not. T- I mean, he's he's a, he, but what he is is oblivious. He's exhausted. I mean, where she was really fair is that she says like he's exhausted from his work. Like this, you know, he's he's struggling just. Just to keep it fucking together, um, and I thought that that was that was honest, and it allowed the focus to be on her relationship with this younger woman. The movie did not succeed for me completely, in part because I could never resolve in my head what Julia was able to and call it an allegory or a fable. Like it's it's slightly it's slightly flattened and symbolic quality kept these people from being real. Specifically, the relationship between Cody and the younger woman like never really came alive for me, and. Um, and uh, that was an issue. And then, like my real, real feelings about the movie, I'm, I'll have to share in the spoiler section because they really involve the the turn. Well, yeah, I was going to say in response to you know Willa, your reaction to that moment when Tully the nanny says you're boring and you're supposed to be boring and parenthood is just boring and accept it is that I appreciated that as a dialectical moment in the relationship, the push and pull between them. But if that ends up being in some way the message or takeaway that we're supposed to take from the movie, which given what happens toward the end, which we'll get to in the spoiler, it may be. 
then I completely object to it. I don't think that we should be, you know, going around proselytizing in our pop culture about how wonderful and important it is to be boring for large portions of your life and bored. And I don't think anybody wants to live with a parent who's boring and bored because then they're depressed and resentful. So I think there needed to be, and maybe there was and I just didn't get it, but there needed to be some further playing out of that dialectic between the two of them and not just have it stop at the nanny being right. Whatever you end up thinking of the ending, whether you feel like it's a glorious apotheosis and deeply wise or an incredible sham and fraud, which I will look forward to fighting with you guys about. Like, I think if you go out and see this, you will have an interesting and unexpected viewing experience, and then you will have a good conversation afterwards. I agree. And it's so obvious we haven't, none of us have said it, but Charlize Theron is toweringly good. I mean, whatever you say about the other characters not being richly developed, I just feel like that person, Marlo, that she plays, you know so well by the end of the movie, and you really love her. She's so funny and acerbic, and she can deliver those Diablo Cody lines that sometimes sound too written and contrived as if she just means them in the moment. In particular, just the scene where she tells off the principal of her, her son's school because there's some trouble he's been having at school and I, the principal is sort of trying to get him kicked out without admitting that that's what she's doing. Anybody who's ever fantasized about having a cathartic interaction with somebody who was sort of subtly dissing their child will really groove on that scene. All right. Well, I look uh, forward to continuing this discussion momentarily in the plus segment. Um, Willa, thanks for joining us and sticking around. Julia, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about some business. I'm sure we have some. What do you got? First, a reminder about our secret summer getaway on June 2nd at a super secret location in Rensselaer County, New York. Again, that's 3 p.m. Saturday, June 2nd. Go to slate.com slash live to buy tickets. Steve is plotting something fun for us all. We should make clear it is a show. It's a live show. It's not a blueberry hike. Um, but it will be bucolic and fun. Ticket holders will learn the exact location a few days before the event. We promise it will be easily accessible by car with parking on site. If you're looking for ideas about where to stay, uh, email culturefest at slate.com and we can send along some thoughts. Uh, I believe Mr. Metcalf recommends an Airbnb in Ghent, Kinderhook, or if you want to do Hudson and drive a little further, Hudson would all be fine. Again, that's slate.com slash live for the show at 3 p.m. on Saturday, June 2nd at the super secret location. And then in Slate Plus today, as we've discussed ad nauseum, we will get into the end of Tully. To hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support the work we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, onward. Decoder Ring is the new podcast from Slate. You are going to love it. And here's why I can tell you with total confidence. It's produced by producer God, our producer God, Benjamin Frisch. And it's hosted by Supreme Ultra Friend of the Program, the first ever Sufop, Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic and frequent guest on our show. It has a special remit, which is cracking cultural mysteries. Before we go any further, why don't we listen to a clip? I've always prided myself on being open-minded about the laugh track. A funny show is a funny show, with or without one. But even so, I always thought of them as automated, mechanical. But they aren't really that at all. They're a craft. Charlie Douglas played his laugh box like it was an instrument, literally. A lot of people think it was just a bunch of laughs thrown into a tape machine and someone's pushing the button. It was an art. I mean, he took it very seriously. 
Here's one of Charlie's laughs. It was used in the late 60s and 70s, including in the pilot for MASH. (laughs) You hear the laughter tailing off at the end? I love that. It tells a story in a single laugh. There's a joke, but one guy in the audience, he doesn't get it right away. He's a split second late, and then he laughs a little bit longer. Here, listen to it again. (laughs) Charlie Douglas wasn't just a sound engineer. He was a psychologist. All right, well, uh, Willa, for your first episode, you talk about the laugh track, and uh, you um, investigate it to its source. You find the person who came up with it, how they came up with it, what they did with it, and what what it's essentially meant to the history of television. I love that it turns out to be something so much more like um, a work of art or a musical instrument than a mere technology or utility. Talk a little bit about your journey to discovering this. Sure. I I didn't know any of this, actually, um, when we took this question on. We took this question on because we thought, this is true. Like, what is the deal with the laugh track? It's become so annoying. It was around forever. Um, And we also knew it had great audio. And that's sort of why we were thinking about it. But it turns out that the laugh track was literally like a box. It was this thing called the laugh box that looked like a typewriter or typewriter keys and vacuum tubes. And um, it was invented by the sound engineer at the very sort of beginning of television in 1950 and the early 1950s um, and started you being used in 1953. And it was like you literally would press a button and it would play a laugh. Um, and you'd play a lot of buttons and it would play a laugh. So it was really like playing like a piano or something. Like there, in some of the quotes we heard, like in researching it, like people would describe like being sweaty, like after playing laugh box, like you actually bang on the keys, you know? Um, and that was just, that's just so strange because you think of it only as like, I don't know what, I don't know that I ever even imagined what was making those noises before. Um, it's just like was the noises, but instead of it just being some like digital thing or some recorded one recorded tape it's like it literally was like a machine yeah I, I one thing that's interesting is the art of making an interesting and satisfying laugh too like I think I sort of assumed it was more like the Wilhelm scream like there was just two or three clips of real audiences laughing that just got played again and again and again and once you've come to hear the laugh track the way we hear it now which is this kind of assessant annoying incursion on your watching experience it would make sense that it would just be like this repetitive idiotic uh like blare of like laughter here more laughter but the notion that there were these artists who were kind of trying to think through what the texture of a laugh would be how a laugh moves through the room how different people's the actual sounds they produce at moments of comedy would layer over one another um it's kind of beautiful totally and it was interesting because some of the people we spoke to sort of who are very attached to laugh tracks we talked to some laugh track devotees who are like really hobbyists of laugh tracks but there was and and also in some of the writing about it suggested that like part of the reason we turned against the laugh track was because actually there was a lot of really junky laugh tracks that started to be used like on animated shows or um like people did just end up basically using like a pre-taped version that then they would play over and over so it was like even more um it just sounded even faker. And that that actually was part of like torpedoing the laugh track, like the torpedoing the laugh track's reputation in the 70s and 80s and sort of led to now. When you do listen to those earlier laughs, you're like, oh, this, there is like a, they do sound sort of more authentic. Like they sound like a group of people laughing in different ways each time. You come up with an interesting theory in the course of the episode about why we feel differently about the laugh track now than we did then. 
Uh, and at the risk of this episode of the Slate Culture Gap Fest being too spoilerific, can you preview some of the issues uh, that began to surface for you? Yeah. I think that we think about the laugh track as being this thing that's supposed to make us just laugh. And it started, and then, and now we're like, that is just not funny at all. That doesn't make us want to laugh at all. Like, it makes us not want to laugh. It just sounds so, it's an incursion, as you said. It's like, it's, it's, it's bad. It signifies that the thing is bad and it signifies that the thing isn't funny. But pretty early on in thinking about it and thinking about its origins, it sort of became clear that the laugh track was never just about trying to make us laugh. It was also about trying to get over the weirdness of TV and, and radio even before then of like listening to something funny by yourself or in your house with just your family and and going from a place where you saw funny stuff in a communal setting to the thing we do now, which is to see funny stuff all by ourselves on our phones. And that transition is actually um, maybe a more powerful lens in which to view our feelings about the laugh track than as this prod to actually laugh. Um, So that's sort of how we framed the episode, was to think about, to sort of think about what it was doing and then to sort of, by the end, sort of really um, framing it as a way, as like a tool to sort of like, fake you into thinking you're not alone. And then we just basically don't need that tool anymore because we're all extremely comfortable being alone and atomized. And we weren't always. It's almost a genealogy that you're creating. It's sort of like the um, the, the traces the traces of DNA of, of old theatrical performances, you know, sort of had to slowly be, be bred yeah. out of the culture as, as we became solo viewers instead of communal totally. viewers. Totally. And it's interesting because when we've been talking about other possible questions, like this idea... You, I can see it like will recur because there's lots of things like we were thinking about why do people clap? Like there's just lots of things or, or jingles. Like there's lots of audience participation things or um, the way an audience reacts to something that are playing on probably this idea about like we used to we used to find being in a crowd comforting or familiar or we needed it and now we really find it distasteful and off-putting um, and want to imagine that our taste is just solely our own. And there's lots of reasons that, that for that change. And we didn't touch on all of them, obviously, in this episode of a half-hour podcast. But like, I think that, that sort of those ideas are all percolating in there. Mm. It's it's funny. You you locate the... I mean, I love the, the, the genealogy of it, that you had an era of TV shows that were single-camera without a studio audience, and so it had to be uh, piped in or overdubbed later. Weren't those multi-camera? No, it's actually so interesting, because now every... We didn't get into single-camera, multi-camera, because it was like going to take like uh, 200 words of just exposition, like me talking for five minutes about something so boring. But what's amazing is all those shows like Gilligan's Island, Bewitched, The Adam Family, Beverly Hillbillies, those are all single-camera shows that just had this fake laugh track. And now single-camera shows are the shows like which are basically most things on television, but The Office, Arrested Development, 30 Rock, um, those shows are the ones that don't have laugh tracks and and where the camera moves. So you're like, of course it doesn't have laugh track. It would be really fake. Like there's no place for the audience to sit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it, what I thought was among the many cool things about that genealogy is that there's, there's a different kind of writing style begins to develop in which there's much denser dialogue. The pace is much quicker and there's no uh, set up joke pause kind of, you know, fake guffaw, set up joke, you know, pause for fake guffaw. That gets lost completely and you, and you identify Sports Night, the Aaron Sorkin show from the 90s as the turning point. Yeah, I mean, Sports Night is such a, was such a good example because it had a laugh track, even though 
the people making it, which were um, Aaron Sorkin and the director, Tommy Shlomi, who we talked to, really didn't want it to have one. But at that moment, shows still, like comedy still had laugh tracks. And so the network, ABC, was very uncomfortable with the idea of not having one. So they gave it to the show. They sort of forced the show to have one, but they didn't change how the show was written exactly. And so you just realize that if you're going to have a laugh track, you have to pace your entire show around that fact. And if you're not going to pace your entire show around that fact, there's going to be like a collision. Like it's going to sound very strange. And so um, basically that's what happened with Sports Night where there's like this faint laugh. You There was, there was a couple clips we were played where we're like we weren't sure if it was the laugh track or it was like paper rustling in the background. Like it was the laugh track, but it was so faint. They were so uncomfortable with it. Part of it's just about the writing style, right? So much of... Aaron Sorkin is kind of the overlapping swift response of humans to each other in the scene, whereas you also play this clip of Friends with the laugh track dropped out, and you're just like, what? Friends don't, not friends, not capital F, friends, lowercase f, friends. Humans don't talk to each other that way where they, like, make a joke and then, like, pause to hear this Greek chorus, like, you know, get lost in bouts of hilarity about it it did it did make me wonder because actually that is something we do on this show is like try to make each other laugh but also hope that maybe you guys are laughing out there somewhere dear listeners and it made me wonder about trying to do a laugh track on the slate culture gab fest we'll leave it to ben to decide whether he wants to laugh track our segment on telly seth stevenson actually wrote me this email about the show and he mentioned he was like just listening to it made me realize like how often some people just provide their own laugh track. Like people just laugh after every single thing they say. And I had just talked to a woman who like sort of nervously was doing that. And it is like it is it made me think that there's a reason that we are so incapable of blocking it out in a comedy, in a sitcom too. It's like we're sort of used to blocking it out just in conversation. Like it's just is like polite and gent like friendly filler when someone like nervously teehees after every sentence that they've said. Like that happens all the time. Ugh. Sounds awful. I'm glad, I, I'm glad I've been blocking that out. <laughs> now all of our laughter yeah. sounds false. <laughs> we did. Ben and I had a bunch of um. We had some taste conflicts. I would say about how much of the laugh track like we could use in the show, or Ben didn't want to use any of it, and I wanted to use it like maybe a couple times, but I could never like sell the joke enough to actually make it. Like I, I wasn't like a good enough actor to be like, now I really want a big laugh. But it seemed like we could have maybe like used it in a funny way. I really love moments when you play bits of the laugh track and make observations that they, we can then listen for in the clip, like the one guy who gets the joke a little bit later, you know? Yeah. I mean, just the idea that whoever the laugh track technician was, was taking the time to imagine these characters, <laughs> like the slow guy who laughs a little bit too late. All right. Well, Willa, this is, uh, it's it's such a bonus to have you stick around for uh, additional segments, but this was wonderful too. Your show is terrific. I really, really enjoyed the first episode and I'm looking forward to uh, future ones. So congrats and thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me and thank you for um, letting me use this platform to harangue all of your wonderful listeners with my late, our latest project. We really appreciate it. Um, well, I love the show. I'm so excited about what you guys have made and I can't wait to hear what's next. And and uh, I would exhort all Culture Gabfest listeners to both listen to Decodering and send your Decodering ideas, send your cultural questions. Uh, if there's stuff you've always wondered, I'm sure Willa and Ben would be very curious yeah. to hear it. You can just email us at decodering at slate.com. Or CC Culture Fest, because we want to see the ideas, too. <laughs> Some ideas are bigger than others. Some even grow so large that they turn into paradigms. Their logic organizing the way we see everything around them. So writes Amanda Hess in the New York Times Magazine in her piece, What Happens When People and Companies Are Both Just 
brands. Julia, I'm going to turn to you first. This was a provocative essay about how branding has come to really overtake our consciousness, not only of reality, but of our own selves. At one point, Amanda Hess uh, says, um, at its core, branding is a process of humanization. It imbues companies with personalities. We're familiar with what corporate branding is and how it functions, but her point is a much more perturbing one, which is that the process is now reversed and human beings are starting to imbue themselves with the qualities of, of corporations that a form of self-selling in the age of social media means that we are self-branding that, you know, kind of down to our essence. It's really how we conceive of ourselves and present ourselves. Uh, what do you make of that? I had two slightly conflicting responses to this essay, which I'm hoping you two will help me sort out with your usual acuity. So number one is it is totally interesting and true that even the most sort of anti-corporatist, anti-oligopolistic and and generally skeptical, cynical people have kind of adopted on occasion the parlance of things being on brand or off brand or just the notion of the personal brand. Like it's 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 pervasive enough that that it's not necessarily ostentatious to say it. And it raises totally fascinating questions. I mean, obviously, the Supreme Court has ruled that corporations are people for the purposes of political speech. And in a way, it's like humankind have has also issued a counter ruling that that persons are corporations for the purpose of I don't know what. But my secondary and countervailing thought is, is this actually a new concept or are we have we just replaced the word brand for the older word reputation, which like obviously people have managed, cared about and been judged by their reputations for centuries. Like plenty of classic novels are about reputation. Reputation were things to maintain and had different gendered expectations and other factors. And, and I'm not saying that the concept of managing your reputation was ever the most benevolent uh, portion of human life, but... Is there actually something new here? As opposed to just the naming of, of... Is this just like a corporatist term for an age-old phenomenon of like what people think of you matters and you have to pay attention to it and that's sort of annoying and makes you focus on projections of self rather than, I don't know, whatever we want to be focused on, actual self, being, mindfulness, presence, whatever. But like caring what people think of you... That's not new. That's like not a horrible incursion of capitalism upon our time. Well, I mean, I just, what's the relationship between, you know, this notional person, Wendy, and Wendy's, the, you know, uh, burger joint and the actual food that they're selling? You know, um, the, the point is Wendy doesn't exist, or if she exists, she exists really mostly at this point as a logo, a logo and a set of associations. When you're talking about a you know a brand using a set of symbols or images or 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 you know evocative words in order to you know produce a set of you know b- benevolent feelings in a consumer, you know to what degree should that describe? It's not only a question of to what degree should that describe interpersonal relationships or non-transactional relationships. It's just to what degree should that be a paradigm for all of human interaction? And the more we spend time on social media and the more we're thrust into a gig economy, you know, the more we're looking for opportunities to create something like a personal brand, the less we're doing something else. And I think the point of those novels was to bring people to consciousness of how much of their own self and soul they'd poured into something as directed to others as their own reputation to the point where there was kind of nothing left i mean in a way and and those novels are great but but 
the ability of capitalism to produce new paradigms by which people exploit others and themselves. It's so innovative that we need innovative modes of critical thinking and innovative modes of art to tell us how we are taking our essence and squandering it in a way. And my question isn't, I hope, the totally declinist or nostalgic one. My question is just the purely pragmatic um, and somewhat empirical one, which is just how much of life currently is is plausibly described by this paradigm of branding and how much is left that's outside of it. And what do we think of those institutions that were devoted to non-branding types of behavior? I mean, and to take one specific example, it's like, you know, it, it the university, right? The idea that as in order now to succeed within the university system, you know, your best path to success is our modes of self-branding. And that's, you know, I, you know, is that a loss? Was there an ideal of scholarship or serious and slow and thoughtful? I mean, it was kind of being you were given a reprieve from the marketplace in order to do something serious. And 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 that's what, you know, many, many cultural institutions existed to do. They were they were established on a nonprofit basis. They placed a ring around you um, that said, okay, here's a you know, here's a non-commercial space in which you to in, in which for you to develop yourself and something unexpected out of yourself. And my question is, you know, how much how much of the world is plausibly described like that anymore? And it's less and less and less and less. And and if if it's getting down to nothing, I think having a vocabulary for understanding how it's heading towards nothing is not a small thing. And something else new she brings to it. That's that was very well said, Steve. And the university is a good example of, you know, something that can't escape from the logic of brands, right? Universities are trying harder and harder to brand themselves and make themselves appealing to different consumer constituencies, but yet that supposedly exists to to create some sort of escape from the marketplace for at least some period of people's lives. Um, but something that Amanda Hess brings up that I think does supersede or go beyond the the 19th century concept of reputation is how she links all this to the gig economy. And this even kind of takes the idea of personal branding beyond, for example, what's that 1997 article that she cites, the brand called you, right? This idea of turning yourself into a brand as kind of a self-help move is not new at all. It's been around since the late 90s and the kind of beginning of the internet. But now with the with the importance of the, you know, the gig economy and companies like Fiverr, which is one that she mentions, the company for, you know, freelance entrepreneurs or Uber or any of those companies, with that economy, personal branding has sort of become people's only portable way of showing or selling or being who they are professionally, right? I mean, there's sort of this idea that you're down to nothing but your brand, which you then have to go out independently and, and market and foist on other people via social media or whatever. And I feel like that portability, that idea that, you know, you're sort of you're stripped down to only that because you're not going to have any institutional or governmental or otherwise public sort of support for your for creating your career or life seems like something new a new a new wrinkle in the the branding journey i guess i don't know i'm growing more skeptical about this topic as we speak like even that essay in 1997 which was very influential and caused people to think about personal branding and the broader patterns and trends that people tend to work at more places over the course of their lives and see themselves less as striving to get in in their 20s at a place where they will work until their 60s and then and then retire and get a gold watch means that you have a set of kind of you have a reputation that you carry with you from place to place and that helps you get different roles and jobs obviously that plays out differently in the white collar economy than it does 
in the gig economy, where obviously companies like Uber are sort of exploiting that rhetoric uh, and and in order to spare themselves the costs of providing proper benefits to their employees who would they would not call employees because they would call them contractors. And you can see sort of the desperation in, in certain Uber and Lyft rides of people to try to get the five star rating or be, you know, uh, establish their personal brands as drivers within these 1099 economies. And that that does seem like a novel and dire development in terms of the workplace and how we structure our lives. But in the broader, I, I think Amanda Hess is trying to make a broader argument about how we think about the work that we do on social platforms, projecting ourselves personally and thinking about that in terms of brand management. And again, it's new to have all these digital platforms where you present versions of yourself. But um, I'm still not convinced that it's that novel to like the the question of to what degree are your decisions and choices driven by what other people think of you and to what degree are they driven by qualities internal and intrinsic that's like an age old human no, problem yeah, that of, that to some degree this just feels like a an occurrent gloss on but not actually a symptom of the current technical or economic moment yeah but the question is how is an economy structured and in, in what way does it force you to become a certain kind of human as opposed to another kind of human or to drown, right? I mean, unique to human history is the incumbency to be essentially your own corporation or your own corporate form. I mean, it's the equivalent of what she's going through in Tully vis-a-vis -vis motherhood. You're, the, this impossible demand is placed on you, which is to completely alone within a gig economy make yourself into a business, make features of your own personality, your, you know, the way you look, the way you talk, the way you walk, the way you dress, make them all, invest all of them into this thing called your personal brand and then monetize it. That is utterly novel. It, I mean, it, everything human beings do goes back to us crawling out of the primordial slime and onto land and you know uh, i mean we're, we're continuous with our past no matter what we do we face the problem of human nature and the problem of society over and over and over again but society is um you know radically mute mutative and it it has mutated again in this very strange way and the question is whether we're being liberated under our own humanity by becoming personal brands or alienated from it and um, I, I thought the Guardian essay, which said humans have inconvenient characteristics not possessed by T-shirts and sneakers, we're social animals who need others in order to flourish, pouring our energy into investing in you would leave all but the most committed sociopath feeling empty. And it's also another question is, well, we are facing somewhat unique and novel social problems right now, and it would be nice to scapegoat one hideous person and say that he's the origin of all of them, but he's in fact the culmination of um, a million contributions, you know, to what some people now believe is a pretty fucking sick society. And I think that there are modes of individualism that respect the individual and there are modes of individualism that utterly undermine and empty out the, um, the dignity of the individual. And there are other older traditions, right, that have always spoken against 
this other directedness or self-salesmanship. And the question is, why are those so weak relative to the forces that tell us we need to adapt, disrupt, move on, self-sell, or fuck you? Well, don't you think that's part of what the rise of of sort of the focus on mindfulness and self-care? And I, I think there actually is a, a kind of counter movement at the moment that's trying to pull people away from giving a fuck, essentially. Like, And, and of course giving a fuck is maybe not the right language because DGAF is also a personal brand at this point. And of course, if you give enough of a fuck to care whether people think Mm -hmm. you don't give a fuck, you inherently give a fuck. But like, to be clear, I'm not saying that being other directed is good. I'm just saying that it is an age old human struggle between being other directed or being internally directed. And I think you're probably right that the forces of of self-presentation are ascendant at the moment in ways that we should think about and be troubled by. But I resist the gloss that that they are born anew and are are the pernicious new children of this moment. I, I mean I just I I have to push back on that. I mean it's like people have had to work for bread since the beginning of civilization, but a factory was a new thing, right? Would people were people not tasked with thinking through the new social arrangements brought upon by urbanization, industrialization. Like what about deindustrialization and digitization and globalization? These are new. They're fucking radically new. They're not, they, you know, of course we're still like carbon based creatures. We still want validation, recognition, love, sex, food. Like there, there's a, there's a, there's a human continuity. The question is how is the human substrate the the continuous human substrate interacting with the social mutation? And I don't think you can downplay the social mutation. Like we had to think through what it was like to move from farms into cities. What did it do to the internal lives of human beings? Like what did it do to the internal lives of human beings to go from having no printing press to having a printing press? Like we're going through a transition that's absolutely that monumental. I think to downplay it by saying there's something continuous and not disruptive about the human experience is to play into the very forces that want to throw us into a gig economy all alone and ask us to sink or swim. And I would I would just add to that, Steve, that another reason to have this conversation again now, even if it is an ever-renewing conversation, that we'll always have some, as you say, some substrate that remains the same going back to, you know, the days of Thackeray writing about, you know, socialites trying to, to rise in London or whatever. What makes the conversation worth having again now, in part, is that we have a president who is literally a brand, right? I mean, one of these writers, I think it was that same Guardian piece that you cited, Steve, says something about branding is about sell the sizzle, not the steak. That's kind of an old, you know, whatever help self-help catchphrase about how to brand. And here we are with the president who literally sold the sizzle of his name and has now become, you know, this, I don't know how else to say, it, just like a pernicious monster destroying the world. So that in itself seems like a reason to dust off the brand convo again. To be clear, I am neither a pro-Trump stooge nor uh, <laughs> arguing that that like we should all only care what everybody else thinks of us, nor that digital platforms have no impact on us. I just think I, I think the focus on the corporatist term maybe distracts from the question I think is more interesting now, which is how does our ability to digitally connect with everyone and create multiple digital selves change the self? Like to me, that is a real and and, and urgent question. And I also think that, yes, there there are forces in the economy that are, are making us more atomized in ways that are also worth examination. But I, I worry sometimes that the brand conversation obscures those interesting issues rather than eliminating them. 
All right. Well, this is definitely one that should uh, send people scurrying to Facebook uh, to weigh in. Um, What happens when people and companies are both just brands was an Amanda Hess essay and a taking off point for our discussion. Uh, Come and finish it with us at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Moving on. Unless that's off brand for you. Laugh track. (laughs) All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Well, for the last couple of weeks, we've talked about possibly doing Kanye West and his recent tweet storms as one of our topics. And we put it off for various reasons. We wanted to get somebody who was a music person to come in and talk with us, maybe. Then we thought, oh, he's got some albums dropping. So maybe we'll wait until the music comes out and we have a bigger new Kanye package to talk about. Um, And I've resisted doing this topic just internally, I think, just because... Kanye West doesn't mean that much to me. Like he's always seemed sort of whack. So the fact that he's gone a little bit deeper off the whack end hadn't been huge on my radar. But last night I read something about Kanye that was so great that I also feel that we don't need to talk about him because it's been done so beautifully. Um, but that I just want to send people, even if you feel like me, sort of indifferent to annoyed at the general uh, public presence and ubiquity of Kanye West, I think you'll get a lot out of this beautiful piece of writing. It's by ta Coates in The Atlantic, and it's called I'm Not Black, I'm Kanye. Uh, It's just a gorgeous, poetic, deeply sad and troubling essay that starts off actually not about Kanye, but about Michael Jackson. He has a long description of his discovery of Michael Jackson as a child and sort of how black celebrity was very different in those days than now, but also finding this sort of thread of continuity between the self-destructiveness of Michael Jackson and his attempts to remake his face and body and self and uh, and whatever Kanye West is, is up to on, on Twitter and with Trump, et cetera, right now. So it's called I'm Not Black, I'm Kanye by ta Coates in The Atlantic. Absolutely beautiful piece of writing. Uh, I can't wait to read that piece of writing. I also think it is unlikely that we will make it through the next six weeks without talking about Kanye at some I know, point. Sorry, I know. Dana. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is always interesting when we talk about him. I just feel that I personally don't have I don't have a lot on the line when I'm talking about Kanye. I don't really you know, for all kinds of reasons to do with my race, my class, my gender, who knows what, the kind of music I listen to. I just don't feel invested in that conversation. And this this piece just showed me what that conversation might mean and how much it might mean to lots and lots of people. Oh, that's cool. Julia, what do you have? All right. I've got a uh, sky is blue, Pope is Catholic, bear shit in the woods um, kind of endorsement this week. So get psyched, everybody. And not only is it incredibly obvious, it's also um, something we've also discussed recently. So I can't even claim to be surfacing something that might be forgotten by our listeners. But I try every week to share the thing that I have found most culturally transporting. And in the spirit of intellectual honesty, I must confess that I am endorsing Reading Howard's End by E.M. Forster. (laughs) Oh, my God, you guys. I can't believe I haven't read this book since fifth grade. So it it was because of stars with a Z that you were driven into the arms? Stars with a Z and discussing the book with you guys and Willa and just, you know, just having it on the horizon again made me think, oh, it's time. Let me pick it up. This book had so much going for it. I highly recommend it. Like, pop it on your Kindle right now. Just start reading it. It is immediately effervescent and delightful. Uh, It has one of those wonderful omniscient narrators who, in addition to tartly relaying the exploits of his lovable but flawed characters, is prone to offering pronouncements and truths about how the world is and pulling them off as incredibly insightful and delightful like 
one of the jobs of the novelist is to be an observer of the human condition. And one way to make a satisfying novel is to offer worthwhile, surprising and interesting observations about that condition. And this novel has all that in spades. Uh, and there was one particular line that I loved because it reminded me of, of uh, making this show with you guys. Uh, in in one conversation, Margaret Schlegel uh, is arguing with her aunt about uh, whether or not it's good to be prepared for something. And they're having a little fight. And in the course of their fight, the aunt is saying it's as well to be prepared. And Margaret says, no, it's as well not to be prepared. And the aunt says, why? And Margaret says, because, and trails off. And then the narrator says, her thought drew being from the obscure borderland. And I was like, yes, that's the thing <laughs> I feel like we try to do. Like the the way I like to organize my thoughts for this show is to is to sort of gather them in the obscure borderland. But my hope is that they will draw being in the course of talking to you guys and hearing your ideas. And that that sense of how you search for a thought in conversation is just so apt and so beautifully put. And there's so many moments like that that in addition to advancing the plot give you the feeling of learning something about how being human is. It's just a great book. I realized that to tell anybody in the world in 2018 that Howard's End is a great book is perhaps a foolish and fruitless endeavor. But please, if you have never read it or haven't read it recently, I can tell you, you will enjoy it greatly if you read it now. I like that endorsement yeah. also because me and Steve convinced you to read something like on the double. <laughs> I mean, what did we do that show two, three weeks ago and you're already reading the book? That makes me feel influential. Of course. You're an influencer, Dana. It's part of your personal <laughs> brand. <laughs> Can I give you two, mo- track. Two, two, more, two more quotes that I like? Steve, are you just going to say laugh track rather than laughing for the rest <laughs> kind of, of like, the show? Kind we, of like Aflac. I'm going to be the, the laugh track duck. This will be like the day we ruined our show, unfortunately. <laughs> Sorry, guys. This is the last good episode. <laughs> Oops. Um, there's just so many more in here like this that are so good. There's one where uh, Margaret is debating whether or not to discuss with her sister the rearrival in town of the Wilcoxes, the family whose son she had a, a torrid and broken off romance with. Um and worries that solicitously asking her sister whether she's worried about it will will kind of spur and foment emotion rather than help it subside. Uh, and then puts together a large metaphor about journalism and how journalism can kind of spur on foreign entanglements by constantly asking whether they're happening, um, which is an emotionally true dynamic. And and the narrator asks, have the private emotions also their gutter press? Which like, <laughs> yes, they totally do. And that's completely a true dynamic. And um, it's just it's just tart and, and wise and excellent. So read Howard's End. Well, I was going to endorse watching the BBC show through to the end, which I finally did. And I just loved it. And now I want to reread the book and see. Because it struck me as getting towards the end, it might have changed quite significantly. But I... I don't have a vivid enough memory. But um, in addition to that, I want to endorse um, by far and away the most interesting thing of culture that uh, came to my attention over the past uh, couple of weeks or so. An artist friend of mine put me on to James Castle. Do you guys know James Castle? Oh, yeah. I know James Castle very well. He's great. He's probably my favorite outsider artist. It would be one of whatever designation you want to make. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a fair one. I mean, he's, he's different than... Let me describe him a little bit. I, I knew nothing about him, but he was born right at the end of the um, 19th century in 1899 in 
a tiny little rural community in Idaho. He was really deaf, very deaf. Um, and he he didn't go to school until he was 10, at which point he was enrolled in a special school for the deaf and the blind in southeast Idaho. Um, and uh, he ends up back on the family farm and he begins to make art. And he does it incorrigibly. He just can't help himself. He uses whatever is to hand. He has no traditional art supplies whatsoever. He begins using soot from the fireplace mixed with spit as his ink. And he begins to make these exquisitely beautiful um, kind of grayscale soot drawings. Uh, and he finds, he makes his, he fashions his own nib. I'm reading off of, there's a wonderful website, jamescastle.com. I mean, it's really worth going to if you don't know didn't, don't know him as I didn't. But anyway, he fashioned his own art materials from such things as sticks, apricot pits, and broken fountain pen nibs. Uh, and he just made stuff. He just couldn't help it. And he had no conception of it himself as art. Um, I mean, he, he had every conception, a total conception of it as art, but, but not art in the capital A sense that we would think of it. And it was only when a nephew, many, many years later, he did this over the course of several decades, but in the 1950s, his nephew, uh, who's at uh, art school in Portland, realized that this was extraordinary work, totally original, totally anomalous, and um, began to collect it um, and um, exhibit it uh, in somewhat traditional, you know, gallery settings. And uh, over time, Castle has been recognized as one of the truly great outsider artists, uh, and certainly given his biography, one of the most in uh, most interesting, totally compelling. So um, I, an artist friend of mine, loaned me the catalog from the retrospective at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, which is an incredible book. Uh, and But there's also a ton of material at jamescastle.com. It's pretty freaking rewarding to acquaint yourself with um, him and his work and his life. So there you go. Dana, thank you. Thanks, Steve. Julia, thanks. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Drop us a note, Facebook at facebook.com slash culturefest. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. 